Do you rather be on your own? No. Actually, no. But... The last time... with Martha, like I said, it... it got complicated. And that was all my fault. I just want a mate. You just want to mate. Watching television, watching television. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of A Very Special Episode, a podcast where I get to curl up on the sofa and talk about telly with some of my favourite people. This week's episode is a bit of a bumper episode um, with one of my good personal friends, Gary Mack who you'll hear about in a minute. We're going to be talking about an episode of Doctor Who, uh, Series 4 of Doctor Who, the new Doctor Who, uh, called Turn Left. And I'm not going to give you a recommendation this week because this is a bit of a, a bit of a long runner. So you might notice that the sound on this week's episode is a little bit different to usual. We had to abandon ship with the technology that I usually use to give us two lovely uh, audio tracks and just use Zoom. So it's a bit a bit rough around the edges, but I do think there's a lot of really good meaty stuff in here. Um, the fact that we didn't have two audio tracks means that you will hear uh, what I refer to as my affirming gay noises, which I usually have to cut out of the episode. Just lots of yeses and ahas and yeah, wow, amazings. Um, so please enjoy that. Uh, and I'll see you at the back of this episode with next week's very special episode. My very special guest this episode is Gary Mack. Gary is a queer artist and writer known for Gonzo Cosmic, Tomorrow and Freakout Squares. He's currently undertaking PhD research at Dundee and Edinburgh on queer temporality in comics with increasing focus on utopia and futurition, which he complements with a political queer comic series called Praxis. Hello, Gary. Hello, Michael. Thank you. Hi. Lots of lots of meaty, meaty subject matters mm. to focus on, I think. Yeah. But if we kind of go in, in terms of queer temporality, if we go all the way back to the start and start <laughs> with what sort of stuff did you watch when you were younger? Oh, I mean, all sorts. But like the thing that stood out for me was uh, He-Man and She-Ra, Masters of the ah. Universe. Um, I was absolutely obsessed as a kid. Um, I loved He-Man when it first came out and I, like, I loved the toys and all the rest of it. And then when She-Ra came out, I loved the cartoon. And then my sister started to get Shira dolls because that was the way that it worked. Yes. To me, they were part of the universe and therefore they got kind of slowly subsumed into my collection. <laughs> um, but I just adored that. I thought it was just it was pure fantasy. It was really, really kind of over the top. And yeah, it was just great. So I suppose that's kind of the earliest sort of stuff. And then relevant to our theme today, mm. I was I grew up with the seventh doctor. Okay, so Sylvester McCoy. Sylvester McCoy and Ace. Um, I'm only going to talk about Ace. I'm not going to talk about anything that happened prior to that. Um, <laughs> doesn't exist. But I remember like being quite young when that was getting broadcast and just really loving it. It was just so weird. Like It was like nothing else I was watching at the time. It was just mm. incredibly strange and very kind of weird and numinous and ethereal and stuff. Um, and then sort of a little bit later than that in my teens, my guilty pleasure, believe it or not, at the time was Buffy. Wow. Um, what was guilty about liking well, Buffy? This is a generational thing, Michael. Mm, I think it might of. be. But, um, so I was a little bit older. I was in my teens. Um, 
And even amongst my gay friends, it was like, it was geeky. It was like, you just, you wouldn't admit to watching it, you know? Like, time's changed a lot. But I think it really has. And I think I, I kind of really noticed that with my friends who are like, maybe even like, like it's literally not even five years younger. Yeah. I think, I think the that even when I was growing up, like the acceptance of geeky stuff was much lower. And it was like weirder to talk about being into sort of like, I think things like Buffy and Harry Potter and stuff mm -hmm. like that really have made that acceptable mm -hmm. or were part of the wave of things that made that much more yeah. acceptable to talk about. I think there was a generation where it just, like your generation probably, it just was more acceptable probably because there was more of that stuff around. Yes. But I think it was probably the likes of Harry Potter that actually changed that conversation completely because it was, it started to become much more far reaching. And then the comic book thing as well, the influence of comics and the way that that culture started to take over, the idea of being called a geek was less of a sort of slur. Whereas, mm. I mean, when I was growing up, it was the double-edged thing with Buffy because it was, you know, like strong female character, therefore gay. So, yes. you know, on that hand, you know, you didn't tell your straight pals that you were watching it. But then even my gay pals, it was just like, that's just geeky. Like, that's just totally geeky. Why would you watch that? Um, what was it that, what did, what kind of drew you to Buffy? I guess the geeky thing and the strong, strong female, female character. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, I've always loved, like, I mean, the weird thing about Buffy is that I had seen a lot of horror prior to Buffy that was mm. like not for teens not for young adults like it was adult and you know adult films you know 18 certificate films and stuff like that so like I was already immersed in that but it was the the, the way that Buffy used the language of the horror genre I think just really appealed to me it was the first time I'd ever seen that kind of like genre mash up with the teen drama done so well you know um, and I just, it was, I think it, it's, it's humour and everything as well, like the fact that it was quite irreverent from the start and was always willing to sort of take risks with certain episodes and things, it just gripped me right away. Yeah, yeah, and I think incredibly, I think Buffy was incredibly influential in a way that I don't think it always gets credit for no. in terms of that. I mean, I think it was the thing that 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 did that sort of teen drama horror mashup thing but also in a way that wasn't treating the younger audience like idiots. Yeah. Like, like I think it did really well to kind of balance things out and just tell really good stories, I guess. Mm. I mean, um, I was reading about um, My So-Called Life mm. and apparently Joss Whedon was heavily influenced by that. And like, I didn't know that. And that makes so much sense to me. Something like My So-Called Life came along and totally didn't patronise. It yes. was immersed in, it was told from the the eyeline, if you like, of the those characters. And it, it felt like it was written by people who were really sympathetic to that age, not people who'd grown way, way beyond that and were referencing their own youth or whatever. It felt very current. And the mm. idea that Buffy was taking some of that DNA and then putting it into genre work makes so much sense to me. Like, you can see that kind of evolution. It treated them like real human beings, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a favourite character in Buffy? I mean, it changes... Quite I feel like that says a lot about a person. Though. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I have a sort of undying love for Willow, so I think I would have to say Willow. Ah, that's interesting. Just, there's just something about watching Willow. I mean, I suppose it's the thing of watching it when you're a young gay and you sort of see the evolution of like, her sexuality and her character and things like that. It's hard not to kind of associate with her in that way. Um, so, like, she was the one kind of throughout that I really enjoyed her journey, but Anya is one of my favourite characters. Like, I yeah. think Anya's fantastic but there's so many I mean it changes I've just done a film like last year in lockdown I did a, a rewatch of it all and it was changing from season to season 
who my mm. favourite was, do you know what I mean? And then it changes mm. just depending on my mood as well. I think I spent a long time, like, I've spent too much of my energy as a person on whether I was a Willow or a Tara and then sort of realising as I'm into my 30s that I've always been an Anya yeah. and and, <laughs> and that's fine. It's okay to be an Anya. Yeah, just sort of slightly outside of things. There is a moment in Buffy that I always think about is um, it's when Willow goes to Anya for some help with something and she's like, I, I really need your help. Mm-hmm. And Anya's like, okay, is it difficult or time consuming? And I'm just like, <laughs> I, can, I just, yeah, I can relate a lot to it. That's just plugged me right into that vibe of Anya. And I get mm. it completely because she's older than the rest of them as well. I mean, it is like, she's kind of a youth group leader in a way. Mm. Mm. She's sort of just oh, moving her eyes and kind of over it. Do you know what I mean? Like, come on. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, think, I think there is a real thing with Buffy and, I think people often ask about or kind of think about why Buffy has such a sort of overwhelming queer audience. Like mm-hmm. a like it's it always had a really strong queer fan yeah. base even before like Willow came out yeah, and came yeah. into herself as as a I would argue a bisexual woman. Um, I would argue that too, yes. Yes. <laughs> Although like Joss Whedon has recently talked about, you know, if I did Buffy now, Willow would be bisexual. And it's like, hmm. I think she is bisexual in the show. Is there anything uh, really that suggests that she couldn't be? Well, she talks about herself as gay. Like, mm. she's, she calls herself gay. But I think that's something that you kind of did in the yeah. early 2000s. Like, I think... And I think there's something about Willow getting into her first relationship with a woman and just mm. really, like, throwing into herself into, like, I'm going to be a lesbian. And, like... Yeah. like even the outfits in Buffy are very much like, particularly for for Willow, are very much like, I am a lesbian yeah, now. I'm going to wear long style. skirts yeah. and red fair dresses and yeah. stuff like that. Which makes total sense. I mean, obviously, it was probably quite important at the time that he did have her verbalise that as gay, but to me, it doesn't, that still doesn't bind her to that, you know? And mm. um, it would make sense to me if you were to look at like Willow's life afterwards that, you know, that she would realize that, oh, actually it wasn't one or the other, you know? Um, yeah, I kind of read her like that anyway, you know? Were you an Angel fan? No. <laughs> um, I, I was talking about this uh, the other day and like, I, I do want to do a rewatch of Angel, but I'm not going to do the first couple of seasons, but. I have a problem with Angel and Buffy, and that's why I'm not a big fan of the show. As a couple, as a couple, as a character, as an actor, mm. I just, <laughs> it, it just never, I never understood it. I think it was like a, a sort of demographic thing in some ways, but like, it just never, it never floated my boat in any way, shape, or form. I always felt like a special effect on screen, mm. you know, like an appliance or something, <laughs> like you know, just not very emotive and. When he does the Irish episode, it's so oh, bad. And, oh, and the first couple of seasons of Angel, it felt like it was too, it was tied too closely to the main show and wasn't really finding its feet. Although they do shift it and they shift his sort of place within the show and his personality and things. And I do remember it getting a bit better, but I still have that association with him that I just, you know, when when the Angel storyline is effectively over, but then he comes back into the main season and stuff, it's just like, oh, I'm rolling my eyes. Like, can we just move on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give, no, him, I would... give him up, Buffy, give him up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would agree. And I would I would kind of argue that he's probably one of the least interesting characters in that show to have a spin-off. And I think mm. it's it's sort of telling that they surrounded him with a lot of the other very popular characters that that by their nature would have to leave 
mm-hmm. the main show. Um, and I also think like when you go back and watch it now, because it's just gone on uh, Disney Plus in the UK, and I, I kind of went back and watched a couple of episodes, and I'd sort of forgotten how the year 2000 Angel is. Like, there's a lot of post-Matrix special effects that mm-hmm. looked, you know, decent enough in the Matrix with the budget of a big Hollywood okay. film, but don't look that great on television. And there's just this real kind of... They do this real kind of transitional thing between scenes where it's like a flashy sort of... Like, there's always, like, outdoor clips of places in LA with, like, camera flash-style things. Yeah. It's like, this is... It just feels quite naff to watch now. Yeah, to me, it's the the equivalent as Doctor Who and Torchwood. Yes. Angel was trying to situate itself as a more mature show, and I think that meant that the filmmakers were tempted to try, like, mature, and in inverted commas, techniques. Yes. They don't really have a place in the show, but it was them sort of showing off that, like, this is adult drama now, you know, so there's lots of, like, quip pans and interstitial things, and, you know, um, they're taking off of sort of X-Files and Millennium and all of that kind of stuff, and it's mm. like, you're not that show, though. You are still... It's not, it's not that far away from Buffy as a show. You no, know? no. And it does settle down. I think they sort of learn the show. And obviously they were, like, you know, they're making the two shows at the same time for a while as well, and I think... That shows a little bit, you know. Yeah. It, it always felt like it was a little bit the the baby brother to the main show. But yes. I think once it's sort of on its own and it's kind of doing its own thing, it's a bit better. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I would always say that um, I think there's good episodes of Angels, but I think it really, this is probably con- controversial, but really hits its stride in season five mm-hmm. when it doesn't have to be beholden to the main show and, mm-hmm. and can sort of lean into being its own thing. Yeah, and play around and experiment a wee bit, I think. Yeah. What sort of stuff do you like watching now? What are your kind of go-to genres? I mean, horror, sci-fi, you know, like, I'm a genre fan. Um, mm. I don't watch a lot of, like, straightforward drama, although, like, I like good ones. Um, but, like, recently my thing has been sort of very heady, psychotropic stuff. So Legion, um, the sort of X-Men uh, FX show... Uh, I absolutely adored. Um, I just thought it was like thrilling to watch something that was so dense, but beautiful to watch and kind of intricate and things. And then recently, brand new Cherry Flavor just really sort of scratched that itch again on Netflix. Yes. I really love this kind of dark LA occult, kind of lynching, but not in that way where it's, it's, it's not so much lynching as it's playing in the same genre as mm. lynch. But it's not doing the thing which a lot of people do, which is trying to kind of copy lunch. It feels yes. like its own thing, you know. Um, some nice monster designs, just dark and but also very super saturated color wise and stuff, you know. Yeah, that's a show that you've recommended, and a few people have recommended to me, but I've not had the. Mm. I just not had the. I, there's something about it where I look at it on Netflix and I'm like, I'll probably like this, mm. but I need to be in the mood mm. to give this the time and space that it's going to need. Yeah for me to appreciate it. And like at the minute I'm watching lots of cooking shows on on uh, YouTube. That's yeah. the, the the time and space I have. For... Yeah, I mean, I'm in rewatch mode just now. So watching mm. new things isn't happening a lot. Um, yeah. But brand new cherry flavor, like you can spank it. It's not a long season and it's the, the nature of it. I think it sort of lends itself 
to binging. I mean, mm. don't get me wrong, it would have probably been a quite a nice show if it was released weekly because there would have been anticipation and stuff, but it definitely feels quite filmic, so you can just sort of like watch eight hours of it or whatever over a couple of days. Um, but yeah, I think it's one of those... Like, I had seen it advertised on Netflix and it, they were really pushing it and it felt very much like, okay, this looks like it's absolutely my jam. Mm. But I've been burned by streaming platforms so many times where it's like algorithmically designed to appeal to you and then you watch the show and it's just not very good yeah so i'd kind of put it off and then someone had said you absolutely have to watch this so i gave it a go and it was it was exactly what i wanted it to be and it sort of two shows that i have like problems with is sabrina and american horror story both mm. of which i should love but there's a whole host of reasons why i don't and brand new cherry flavor gives me the real it scratches that itch it does it really well so it's playing in that space but it's very very well structured as a story which mm. both of those other shows i think have serious issues with definitely definitely i mean i like both of those other shows mm. but sometimes they are just like things happening yeah. and and just kind of go with it and enjoy it and then you finish an episode and you, ha- you don't really know what's happened yeah. going into the next yeah. one I find that's, um, that's it yeah it's a, a bit of a smear and I like a satisfying structure do you know what I mean I don't I don't need things to be like super structured in terms of narrative and things like that but like when it's the sort of just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks approach it gets tiring after a while like it, it means that you're always watching a show knowing that you're going to enjoy bits but you're not, I'm, me personally, I'm not going to get an overall satisfactory experience from it. I like a good story, you know, um, mm. and things like Brand New Cherry Flavor give me that because it feels, I mean, it's based on a book, which helps, but it's cohesive. It's got a really satisfying arc. You know, characters feel like they're operating from quite solid psychological motivations and things, not just, you know, whiplash decision making and well, where are we now? What are we doing now? You know, mm. um, so that's, that's a really big one, and it's also just like I love um, like winding reference films, and it's just that like really super saturated kind of neon, and also that kind of dark LA vibe, which I really enjoy because you know a lot of people that I enjoy are dark LA magicians, like RuPaul, for instance. <laughs> I think we might come on to her later at some point. Mm, <laughs> um, what is your like comfort watch show? What are the shows that you keep mm. going back to? Well, I mean, Who is definitely one of them. But um, weirdly, shows like Lost and Fringe. Mm. So I've rewatched Lost, I think now three times, which is a, that's a lot because it's six seasons long. And it's a you know, sort of intricate show and stuff, but there's something about, it's particularly during summer when I get the, the the sort of vibe to watch Lost, it is like slipping on like a really comfortable sort of jumper or something like that, even though mm. it's set on a, you know, island in the sunshine and stuff. But um, like going onto that beach with them for the first time always just feels really like coming back home. Yes. And Fringe is the same because I just adore the characters so much in both of the shows. Like it is like catching up with old friends in a way. Mm. Because, you know, you're going to get like a kind of quite chunky, solid, intricate piece of entertainment. It's nice to get swept up in them. But also with both of them, but in particular Lost, I find that each time I rewatch them, there's new perspectives and, you know, I come up with new kind of ideas around them and things. Um, which means that they're not, it's not quite just comfort. It's, it's They're still fresh, you know. Yes, yes. I it, Lost is a... That's an interesting one, I think, because I... I liked it at the time and there, there are I always think that there are great episodes of Lost but 
sometimes it doesn't sort of hang together for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a show that I would ever really think about going back and watching, but it is one that's come up a couple of times as, mm-hmm. as something that that people keep going back to. And I like I know amongst my, you're not the only one of my pals that watches or re-watches Lost um, yeah. at the time. Uh, Fringe, I never watched. Like I, I, I get the sense that it's like, Lost meets the X Files almost. I mean, that would be the elevator pitch in a sense, but mm. it's not really. I mean, it follows the sort of kind of monster of the week or case of the week logic for quite a while, mm. and particularly in the first season while it's setting itself up and stuff like that. And it also sort of has this kind of the way I always see it is if Lost is about sort of trying to find the answers, yeah. then in Fringe, the answers are provided and they've got to kind of work out what the questions are. Oh, uh, okay. And that's really interesting. I think Fringe, JJ uh, Abrams and the rest of the production team have re- really learned a lot from Lost and from its criticisms. Mm. So it's much tighter and it doesn't feel like it's. Like, I, I, I mean, I'll defend Lost to the death. Like, I, I think not every show has to answer everything for you, especially the big intricate ones. Um, I think the fact that Lost has so many, like, lacunas and kind of holes that you can sort of... You're given enough information that you can fill those the way that you want, but just because it's not stated on screen can sort of put people a bit out. But Fringe sort of learns from that, and it, it is really tight. Um, there's no real sense of... It feels like they understand what they're doing from the beginning. And the way that it stacks its seasons is really interesting as well, because Lost is effectively, although each season there is main focuses and things like that, um, it is still kind of one continuous story, whereas Fringe, what it does is it sort of scales up each season. So, mm. you know, you kind of get to the end of season one and you think, you know, where everything is, and then something shifts that and you go into like a bigger version of the world almost and then it keeps doing that with each new season right up to the last mm-hmm. and that's it's like a like an onion layers of an onion type of thing um, mm. and it's also like i just really love the sort of like fringe science kind of pseudoscience like that weird sci-fi stuff yeah Plus yeah they, they, i mean the actors the characters are great but the actors are fantastic and it like john noble that plays walter bishop in it is just outstanding mm. um it's, it's so good it's and again, you know, because the characters are so fully realised and they go on such incredible emotional journeys, it does feel like um, catching up with old friends. Well, something that you... So you watch a lot of sci-fi and mm-hmm. and horror and genre stuff. What's something that you watch a lot that's outside of your wheelhouse, like something people wouldn't expect you to watch? Um, I, I watch, a, you know, a, a fair amount of reality TV, but one of the, the things that... Is a show that I absolutely genuinely adore is MasterChef, the professionals particularly. Oh wow, I didn't know this about you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but the thing about it is, it's like the, I think the reason that I love it is because it's professionals. Mm. So it's not sort of everyday people who are coming on to show their kind of amateur skills and kind of learn to get better during the course of it and you know become the best of that. It's people who are already at a quite high level of skill who are coming on and they're kind of thrown into a sort of like trial by fire. And the the way that they're they're sort of critiqued by the the judges is so sort of comprehensive, constructive. I mean, it's basically it's competency form for me. Like it's it's really interesting. Like as someone who's in a, a creative field, watching people who are already at a quite high level of skill getting pushed further mm. is really really interesting to me. Like what because you know there's there's with the 
waking up ordinary people reality TV, there's always a bit of how are they going to react and, you know, are they going to cry? And, you know, mm. like the, 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 there is a sense that we're almost there for a little bit of schadenfreude and stuff. But with the professionals one, like, it, you know, I, there are other sort of shows um, that are similar um, that I'll probably come to in a bit. But um, the idea of watching people who are good at things being critiqued by people who are even better Mm. And you're trying to push them further is is just absolute like I just love it. It's divine. It's it always sort of inspires me creatively, weirdly, even though like I mean I cook, but I am not sure. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like and I don't cook a lot because I can't be bothered, to be honest. Um but it just watching people really up their game over the course of a show like that. So it's like you're already working as a professional, but what you want to do is come out as top tier. That's mm. it's just that scale up of it is just really satisfying to me and I love the judges on it and things as well you know it's just it's just interesting hearing people in a room talk at that level about the thing that they do you know yes yes you're not the first one as well to say to kind of make that that link between being a creative person or a person working kind of in as a creative professional and watching reality tv where creative people are being sort of pushed to be as good as they can be. I think I think for me, often reality TV gives me a language to talk about mm. being, um, I hate the word, I hate saying a creative, about being somebody who works like as a creative person. Yeah. It gives you a language to talk about it when I think particularly as a working class person, I don't have that yeah. language, but I could compare myself to like, Ben de la Creme on Drag mm-hmm. Race or something yeah, like that. Like, like the really professional contestants and stuff. And mm. how they or even the unprofessional ones. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I agree. I think like I grew up working class as well and you just don't have the, the language or the terminology for these things. So it's just not considered to really be anything that you'll need in your life mm. when you mm. grow up in that sort of economic class. But reality TV then gives you this not not just the terminology, but also the structure of feedback, and the, mm. it's actually I suppose it's probably helped me a lot as well in terms of taking feedback, because watching shows like that, you realise that they're only going to get better if they don't resist the feedback, but if they actually understand where it's coming from, and because it's this sort of professional level, and it's less about sort of making TV out of the emotional journey of the contestants and as it is about watching people do really good work you know it just probably gave me an example of how to be gracious with feedback and how to respect the fact that people who care enough to give you good feedback are trying to make you better yes you know yes whereas when you don't really you've not mixed in those circles you've not experienced that in your education and things like that then the first time you get feedback you know I mean, I think most of us have been there at some point or another, but you get feedback and just like, who are you? You know, yeah. like you've got an editor or something giving you feedback and you're like, oh, can I see your CV? Like, I want to know what your experience is, you know? And you get kind of like put out and stuff. And I think it's a natural thing, but it just gives you that sense that feedback in and of itself is like, it's designed to better you, you know? So mm. watching people sort of react to that and push themselves further and then you see the results of that is actually just really fulfilling you know and it, it sort of gives me that little bit of inspiration myself um and I suppose something like MasterChef it's because there aren't that many I mean you don't get very many sort of reality tv shows about people making a comic book because it would be very <laughs> difficult to do that in times <laughs> challenges and things you know but I think um I'm always intrigued by how um how many of those cooking competition reality shows there are as well because it's such a specific thing 
to show on TV when it's yeah. all about like, I mean, I think often they are about how something looks, which I think is one thing, but like they have challenges on like Bake Off and MasterChef and stuff, which is about how something tastes. Mm. And like the only way you can know how something tastes is, you know, if you're not able to taste it yourself, is if some judge is describing how good it is for you. I think it's quite kind of, it's quite a specific, peculiar thing. Kind of compared to, I think, what would have been the thing like going back 10 years ago of like just cooking shows where they show you, where somebody shows you how to make something. It is interesting how things have kind of moved more into that competitive space. I think that's partly why that's evolved that way because cooking shows themselves, it's very, it's fairly cheap TV. Mm. But there is something about watching people cook food that gets you, it, it's a sense that although you, we can't taste it on screen, all of our other, well, a lot of our other senses are working at the time and it really triggers that sense of like drooling. And, you know, mm. um, so there is something about watching food um, get cooked. But the interesting thing about it on reality TV as well is because of the nature of the judging, it's probably easier to produce as well because like if they want to maneuver a particular contestant then all the judges have to say is on oh, no, it tasted like crap mm. but we don't know that maybe it was <laughs> delicious you know whereas you know if you can see it there you know if we're judging it on site then we know whether it's good or bad or whatever but like if paul hollywood for instance is just like oh no that's bogging like what do you say do you know what i mean maybe the yeah. contestant's like no I, I tasted it it was great <laughs> Um, what's an iconic TV moment you go back to again and again? This was a difficult one for me because I I don't use YouTube and things for mm. that type of thing very much. Yeah. However, I will say that there is one that has just come in at the last minute and it's the slow version of Big Drag Energy from episode two of or two, two or three of um, Drag Race UK season three. Yes. And it is the, you know, the ah, ah move. Yeah. The <laughs> and it's Ella's face. It's the way she's painted her face. It's the sincerity in her look. And then that cheesy move and everything. There's just something about it that absolutely cracked me up first time I saw it, cracked me up second time I saw it, and have since gone back and watched clips of it. <laughs> like, I just think it's absolutely incredible. That's the kind of thing that I would watch moments of more as comedy. Um, I tend to not go back and watch like a scene from something because I'm just that way where like if somebody even mentions Lost to me for instance and I haven't watched it in a year I'm going to want to watch it mm. so teasing myself that way with a scene is just I'm just end up I'm like oh I just want to watch the whole thing now you know yeah yeah I think that that drag the big drag energy thing like when I was watching it I was like mm. oh these are getting a bit sort of crap now aren't they but there's something about them that I found myself singing it for the whole yeah. week yeah. afterwards, and and I I keep going back to it. There there are like, I mean, I think Drag Race by its nature, because it is like a snake that eats its own tail. Like when one season ends, another one begins, um, and sometimes more than one is going. It's, it's the drag human centipede. I mean, it's... yeah, yes, yes. I mean, sometimes more than one is going at the same time, and mm. and they be can become very sort of formulaic but there is yeah. just something when it hits it hits and like yeah. sometimes you yeah yeah it's, it's a sort of accident it's a happy accident you know mm. i don't think any of them went into that thinking like we're deliberately going to make this really really iconic but i think it was just the they really nailed it in terms of doing a parody of that type of song by a girl group do you know what mm. i mean like 
you know, like you could see Emma Bunt and she'd really sort of put her hand over her mouth and laugh the first time they did that. And I think it was less, oh my God, that's hilarious and more like a sort of act of recognition yes. where she realised that is exactly the kind of thing that they do, where you've got to find that little movement you know, that, that hits that little bit of the song. And I just think it all came together in such a way that, like, it was just, it was perfect because it felt sincere and yet it was also a parody and was really funny. But it was Ella's face that just sent me because she's got her kind of, the way she's sort of painted on her brows, they almost sort of turn up in the middle as if she's looking really sincere. Yes. So even when she's smiling and she sort of brings them over, she looks like she's the kind of, like, front woman of the group. And it's like she's bringing them all in and then it's just the chest thing. Ah, ah, and it's just, it floors me. Like, I don't know why I think it's so funny, but it just absolutely floors me. It's one of the funniest things I've seen in ages. Um, what's something you're watching right now, apart from Drag Race, I guess? Is there anything else? It's like there's nothing else. No, um, I've been doing a lot of rewatching of things, you know. Um, I rewatched Unreal. Oh, ah, yes. seasons of Unreal. So, I mean, there's a heavy reality vibe going on here, but... Um, yeah, I, I just absolutely just love that show so much. Um, it really opened my eyes to the way that production works in reality TV, and it made so much sense when I saw it. I mean, obviously, it's a very heightened version, but mm. I say very heightened. It's heightened. I don't actually think it's that heightened. Um, so, like, when seeing everything that happens behind the scenes just gives you a real clue into how reality TV is produced and how it's edited and constructed and narrativized and stuff like that but also you then have just the sheer melodrama of it and and some really really great leads you know like mm. they're just fantastic i mean quinn is just one of my favorite characters in anything ever and i also really love rachel as well like i just think it's nice to see a show that's got women in the leads yeah and that there are male characters there but they're sort of foils for the for the women you know yeah um, particularly in a show where it's not set within a sort of traditionally female environment necessarily it's like it's not about that if you know what i mean it just happens to be that there are women working in this mm. field um there's something about that that i just find really fascinating and also just the the nature of the fact that it you know it kind of dips in and out of the show that it's producing and things mm. like it's just it's great and kind of on that note i also watched um, volume four of dear white people which uh, is yes. fantastic and also has a sort of reality TV show element to it, which is very similar in the sense that it kind of dips in and out of behind the scenes in the actual show itself. Mm. And it's just handled really well. And I just love that. I love the breaking the fourth wall thing of it. And it's the peeking behind the curtain, you know? And yeah. There's so much reality TV around. And I think we have the language of reality TV because we've been watching it for so long. But I, I think it's its whole deal is that it's designed to trick you into believing in it. And I think it's kind of good to sort of have an understanding of how these things are kind of composed as well. I guess it's a good time to talk about your very special episode. Um, why don't you tell us what it is? It is Turn Left, Doctor Who, fourth season of Russell T Davies' rebooted, relaunched, reinvigorated Doctor Who. And it is the second from last episode of that season. Mm. And it is the 10th Doctor, David Tennant, with his wonderful companion, Catherine Tate, as Donna. Love it. And it is one of my favourite episodes of Who ever. Absolutely, one of mine too. I was really excited when he picked this. I've, I've been waiting for... I've made a rule for this uh, podcast where I can only do one episode of Buffy per season mm. and one episode of Doctor Who per mm. season. And I was really excited it was you who picked the Doctor Who episode mm. and that it was this one. Because mm. this is season four of Russell T Davies' 
is I think my favourite season mm. of Doctor of yeah of Doctor Who. I was about to say of yeah. the whole of rebooted Doctor Who, but, but actually, of the whole of Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. What, what's your? You've already talked about kind of being around for the Seventh Doctor and Ace, and yeah. that being your starting point. But mm. what's your relationship with Doctor Who? Sure. So obviously grew up watching it, but I think you know when you're very young and you're watching it, you have a slight disconnect because you're not connected to its history, its mythology, and you're not necessarily sort of avidly watching every episode. You're just catching bits and pieces, and mm. you know there's certain parts of it that you understand, there's certain parts that you don't. You know, there's uh, particular episodes like. Paradise Towers and things like that that I remember at the time but had no clue you know just mm. no clue what it was about and then you rewatch them later on and you realise there's you know there's political and social commentary and stuff in there so it was one of these shows that sort of grew a little bit with me over the years but I have to say like I, when I was I only watched it as a kid and then as an adult uh, or as a young adult I knew folk <laughs> who were Whovians so I knew a guy who was basically Vin I mean he was I knew him before Queerous on but to tell a lie, I knew him after Queer as Folk came out, but he was 100% Vince. Mm. So Davies was obviously basing the character of Vince on, on a, a stereotype, you know, as a, yeah. they are out there. Um, this guy had, like, every single episode of Old Who on VHS, and he had tracked down ones that were missing and all that. Not, not lost episodes or anything like that, obviously. <laughs> he wasn't, like, a full-on detective or anything, but, you know, he'd found episodes that he hadn't had to complete his collection and stuff so he was a you know big who fan geek boy and stuff like that and I remember there was this sort of chatter about it coming back and I wasn't like I liked it I had a you know fondness for it as a kid but I wasn't sort of you know invested in it or anything but I, I loved Queerest Folk um, which came out when I was like 16 or something and mm. when RTD was discussed to be coming rebooting it I was really really interested and I remember having a discussion with this guy about um, Billy Piper being the companion and he was just like that's a terrible idea it's absolutely like it's total nonsense like it's you know that wee pop princess type thing and I was like do you know what I think that might work like I just felt there was something in it that was so fresh and I was like also don't base it on who Billy was when she was releasing her singles like it's been mm. a few years and she's obviously grown a little and stuff like that so anyway, when Rose was released, the first episode of RTD's run, um, I remember sitting watching it with my pal Mel and oh, it was just blown away, like absolutely blown away. It was just mm. from, you know, hit the ground running. Um, just Christopher Eccleston as just this really fantastic doctor from the start and really the idea that it was like focused on Rose and Billy got to sort of really just step onto the screen, step into who and become this like central component of the new run. Mm. Just thrilling, absolutely thrilling. Um, it just got better and better, like both in terms of the stories that they were telling, the sort of confidence that it had, but then also it just became bigger and bigger and bigger culturally. And I just, I loved it. I felt like it was everything that we needed from Who. Like, because I wasn't a sort of obsessed fan of old Who, I wasn't spending all my time comparing it to that or, you know, oh, this isn't sort of mythological or it's not in continuity and blah, 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 blah. Like, mm. it was just refreshing and it really captured something of a sense of where I think the UK was at the time, which... yes deteriorated rapidly, you know, like it really, really changed. We're living in the the repercussions of those changes now, I think, you know, but mm. um, there was something about it that just sort of was like really, really proud to be British and really proud to be fun. Yes. Fun, you yeah. know, entertainment, you know, it was able to be nuanced, it was able to be dark, it was able to be mature at times, but it was also just absolute nonsense, just 
really it was comic you know and yeah you can really see that Rusty Davies is, is is influenced by comics I think um, and I think it comes across in who and it just was really refreshing and it just I think it was a shot in the arm for kind of British TV but also sci-fi and things you know I think it really kind of helped to usher in a, a new stage in, in television and what we expected from it you know um, yeah just I, fantastic I think so and I think there's also such a such a reaction to Russell T Davies Doctor Who that's so specific that it's like I think a lot of people that are into like sort of comic-y stuff or genre stuff or you know things that that sort of the outside world and I think it's people of a certain age and I think it's yeah. people of like my age and upwards actually um people who've kind of been called nerds and geeks for liking yeah. this stuff they take it very very seriously and I think there was a lot of and there continues to be a lot of reaction, particularly to his Doctor Who, mm-hmm. of... I, th- I think there was a version of this that, that could have been, like, the 1996 film and, like, yeah. had the... Doc, you know, had sort of actual guns in it and stuff like that yeah, and, like, yeah. and, and being a little... The Doctor was going through crisis all the time and he was, you know, brooding and... I mean, we got there eventually, we who, but I'm sure we'll come to that. But, um, yeah, the and Dark I think years, that, the Dark I, Age... I think that's it as well. I think it has its cake and eats it because I think it's fun and silly and camp, but I think the storytelling is so tight. Yeah. And I also think there's like, that happens with a lot of Russell T Davies writing actually, where there's like this big massive story going on in the background that is so there and so at the front, but you, mm-hmm. but, but you just get enough of it to know, like the fact that the doctor's coming back from, the time where all of his people have died yeah, yeah. and and here he is with this 19 year old kind of figuring himself out again yeah. and, and finding something to live for like it's a yeah there's a lot of really beautiful stuff in that beautiful introduction to uh and to new who is to take that period of time where it's off screen and turn that into a diegetic thing like mm. a narrative thing of the time war so that whole in between becomes a whole in time, a whole in reality. You know, I, I think that's really beautiful because it sort of undoes uh, continuity, all of that sort of stuff. It's a real, it's a proper reboot device, you know. And I think it's something that gets criticised for as like kind of reboot devices and the big red reset button and stuff like that. But I think actually that became worse in Who after mm. his run. Um, yeah. And there's something about, and we'll come to this when we talk about the episode, I think, but like there's something about having a high concept, but staying on the ground of it. Yes, yes. And I think that's what he does really well, whereas I think in later years it became just too high concept and was trying to follow that high concept all the way through. And mm. I think there's something about who... And I think it's always been there in the DNA of it is that it's got to be kind of reflective of the world in which it's made. Yeah. And I think it loses that a little later. Um, whereas just re-watching this episode and the two that followed it, it's like, it's just, it's a run of Doctor Who where the Doctor is the main thing, especially in the finales, because you obviously have a lot of different kind of um, episodes during the series and stuff, but varying types. But I think the finales, it's like the Doctor saving Earth, saving people on Earth. And I think mm. that is what, what, for me, certainly that's what's required to give it the stakes. Yeah. That yeah. It needs, you know, and I think when you take it away from that and it's now the stakes are 
will the doctor die? Well, you know, we know that they won't. And I, I think it just becomes a little bit flimsier, even though it thinks it's playing on a much, much bigger scale. To mm-hmm. me, it's much more exciting to be, you know, like, so the, the episodes that follow Turn Left is Stolen Earth and Journey's End. It's mad Grant Morrison scale stuff that's happening. You know, planets in the sky forming a mechanism that creates a reality bomb. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like high concept stuff that you can write in one line. We don't need to spend ages going into the ins and outs of that, but it's when you're focused on the people back on Earth, and actually it happens in Turn Left quite a lot as well. It's, it's almost an episode that really focuses in on that. Yeah, It feels more real. It feels like there's more at stake when there are ordinary people who are potentially going to die because of whatever Davros is doing, or do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think that's what RTD does so well, and I think the show needs that. You know, ha- Just having the companions isn't quite enough. I think you need... Just ordinary people. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of struck by that because I, I watched this and I, I went back and I, I can't just watch this episode. I always have to watch the two that follow. Yeah, me too. Um, I tried, I, but it was just impossible. <laughs> and I, I kind of, I kind of, I think I realised that for the first time that that Russell T Davies is Doctor Who and and all of the spin-offs of Doctor Who actually yeah. that were happening at the same time, yeah. um, Torchwood and the Sarah Jane Adventures feel like fully lived in worlds yeah. like there's a lot of times when you'll just get like like there's a bit in the start of the stolen earth where it's like you come in from the perspective of like a milkman yeah and yeah, he's yeah. the one that sees that the world like it's not the doctor it's not the mm-hmm. companion it's not the baddie it's just some yeah. random bloke i mean like dropping the milk bottle and just still mm. staring at the sky as it changes from day to night and stuff it's just beautiful you know and there's so much of that and i think it it's what makes his doctor who feel like his doctor who's my favorite and i think that it's stuff like that 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 resonates and i think the fact that he generally tends to come in through the companion rather yeah. than the doctor the doctor is like a mythological mm. figure um, almost a Jesus-like figure yeah, at some I mean, point. Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that everything uh, Davies does is, is perfect. I mean, I had issues particularly towards the end of the run and some of the finales are a little bit like the the, the sound of drums where it is a very sort of a kind of Christian sort of allegorical thing where he sort of, he becomes the archangel type of thing, mm. you know, the archangel network and he changes from Gollum back into the Doctor <laughs> and it floats and all the rest of it. I mean, it's a sometimes it's a little bit heavy-handed, but it's but even then, even saying that, even if it's a little bit cringy, it's still numinous and I still get the hairs on my arm standing on end. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think he knows how to pitch it emotionally, um, even if, even when it's kind of over the top. But yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think the Doctor should always be new, and I think the fact that they regenerate is it's inbuilt in the show. Mm. And if the Doctor is always new, then the Companion is the necessary way in. And I think again, RTD nails that. I think the Companion, even when we've got a changer over of Companions with a with the same Doctor, yeah, we still come in from the angle of how does this new companion perceive the Doctor and how much of themselves is the Doctor willing to reveal to that companion? Mm. And that's what's interesting. I think when we get too bogged down in the Doctor and their personality is when the show can become a little bit po-faced and a bit too serious and takes itself too seriously, you know. Do we need any context before we go into turn left? Yeah, I mean, I suppose just the, it's the... 
the fourth and final full season of RTD's run. Um, mm. There are some specials that follow, including the two-part finale and the time, but this is the finale of his last full season. It is David Tennant's last season, apart from the specials, and it is the season in which Catherine Tate, who was a guest star on one of the Christmas specials, The Runaway Bride, is asked back as a full-time companion for a season. And it's, as you said earlier, as you said, it's your favourite season. And there's so many good things in that four-season run that it's difficult for me to sort of say which is specifically mm. my favourite. But I do think on reflection that, like, David Tennant and Catherine Tate are probably my favourite Doctor and Companion pairing throughout for yes. the duration of the season. There's episodes from other seasons that are better than episodes in season four, but as a whole, I think season four works really well. And I think it's the dynamic. Um, the dynamic between the two of them is really interesting because they get out... So you've had Rose who falls in love with the Doctor and uh, that is reciprocated, but they are prevented from being together. And then you have Martha who falls in love with the Doctor, but it's unrequited and the Doctor eventually kind of separates from... Well, she she makes the decision at the end to, mm. to separate from the Doctor because it's, it's too much. And then you have Catherine Tate come in. And I don't have any problem with that kind of romantic, emotional stuff that RTD brings in. I think it was really essential for the time and it probably broadened the show for to a much wider audience. Mm. But Catherine Tate comes along in, in the first episode of her run they dispense with that completely, you know, where he's like, I just want a mate. And she's like, you want to mate? <laughs> and it's like, they, they, he tackles it straight on. And it's like, no, this is not going to be that. These are pals. Mm. And I think watching that friendship develop and watching the other ones are a bit, the other companions in his run are a bit precocious, if you like, whereas Donna is not sure of herself at all. And mm. as this season progresses, she realises how kind of indispensable she is to the Doctor and also how she can go toe-to-toe with him in a load of different ways. And I think that's what brings us to turn left. Yeah, so That's the kind of context. They have gone through this full season, really grown together as a duo, have got to know each other and have really become quite, not dependent on each other, but they rely upon each other a lot and they work really well together. Mm. I think the other thing that's probably useful, actually, is that every season of Russell T Davies, Doctor Who has one or two sort of budgety episodes yep. or um, and they'd also do a Doctor Light episode yep. where, you know, to give the person playing the Doctor who has to be in more or less every scene mm. a bit of time off. And this episode is the Doctor Light episode. Yep. And I think it's also, there is a real sense that they're saving money for yep. the finale with this episode because it totally. does, um, we'll go into this in a bit, but... Um, kind of recycles well it's basically mm. the story of Russell T Davies four seasons of Doctor Who yeah. it like it it, it kind of shows you what was happening on earth and on this slightly different um version of earth while all of these bonkers aliens were invading and mm. stuff like that and it's yeah it's it, i think it's the greatest hits, but seen yeah. through a dark lens, you know? Um, yes. Which I think is where it becomes, I think that's where he's really at his stride. There's a confidence about him as an exec producer and writer, but there's also a confidence about the show and the brand, because it is by this point, it is massive. It's absolutely mm. huge. Merchandising and all the rest of it. Like, you've got the Doctor Who experience, you've got Doctor Who at the proms. Like, it was culturally, it was a phenomenon. Yes. And I think the show knows it at that point, but it's not yet got sort of too heavy for itself but I think it's worth pointing out as well though that one of the reasons that I really like Russell is 
I think he's a producer's writer or he's a sort of um, sort of broadcaster's writer. Mm. He's someone who, like, you can see why he evolved to become an exec producer, I think, because he, he's very judicious about the use of budgets and stuff. He's not someone yeah. who's kind of demanding higher production values all the time. He's not, you know, going overboard with special effects and stuff. And I think he knows where to put that money. And what we get with Russell T Davies often is his... Lower lower budget or sort of capsule episodes or whatever are not he doesn't short changes because there's been there's there's another one in that season which is midnight which mm. is the one that all takes place in a sort of train carriage if you like which again is it really sort of obviously saves on budget and yet is a spectacular episode and was actually f- adapted as a theatre performance so he's not short changing you when he's pulling back on the budget and no. I think that's something that's really really worth thinking about with who. It's a complex show. It's a British production, so it never gets as big a budget. And I think exec producers need to take more, need to have more understanding of how to manoeuvre that budget around, how to give us what we want, but not short changes when, when they're saving money. And I think you're right, this sort of trio of episodes, the fact that he saves all that and gives us it in the finale, I think is just perfect because he sort of, it works narratively and thematically as well. Yeah, everything back. You know, I think there's um kind of mentioning midnight as well. There is one of the things that I really like about the Doctor and Donna's dynamic, and you get it a bit at the start of Turn Left as well, is mm-hmm. that they're kind of just going about. They're mm-hmm. like t- they're tourists basically. Because yeah, totally. in Midnight, which is the companion light episode, mm-hmm. um, Donna's not on the bus with the Doctor because she's. Yeah by the pool at a spa on a planet called Midnight. And in this episode, it does start with some kind of Orientalism that feels a little bit... um, (laughs) It feels a little bit funny in 2021 or a little bit kind of not quite kosher in 2021 to see that sort of thing. But they're on this um, planet, which is clearly just some back alley in Wales somewhere with a few banners thrown (laughs) up and like a... I mean, the way um, I see it is it's, it's, it's one of the many Chinese planets in the great and bountiful human empire. Yes, so yes, I course. did have a problem with the Orientalism of it for a long time, but as I watched it this time around, I was like, hmm, why wouldn't the human race have spread out in this form where mm. there are whole, you know, planets or whatever where different races of humans have, you know, um, so I did start to see it slightly differently, although I don't think, I mean, that is just a different, slightly different perspective on it. I don't think we can avoid the Orientalism of it, but mm. yeah. But that's interesting. Yeah, so the, 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 the episode opens, the cold open, it's the two of them wandering around the market, not together. They're no. in the same place and they've arrived there together, but they're just going off and wandering on their own. And that's something that I always really enjoy seeing with the companions. When yeah. they're at such a level of kind of confidence that, and it's often revealed to be kind of foolhardy as it is in this episode Mm. that realistically you should never let the doctor out of your sight but you're on another planet (laughs) possibly another time do you know what I mean if you lose him you're screwed but it's nice to see though you know so when you've got Donna walking about and there's you know people trying to sell her strange exotic fruits and things like that cosmic fruits and stuff um, it's just really nice to see her feeling herself and on her own and just enjoying it. And I think the, the space tourism thing is absolutely right. Mm. It's something that's in Davies Run a lot, but it's often talked about. So like when we catch up with him at the beginning of a new episode, like Tennant, um, you know, the Tenth Doctor and Rose will be talking about, oh, what happened on this planet made of mirrors, blah, 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 blah. Mm. Whereas 
with Donna and the Doctor, we see a lot of that. They are they yeah. are just they're just traveling the stars, and I enjoy that about who, and I think that's sometimes lost as well. Um, one thing that I think Davies does really well is stuff happens to them while they're on the way to do other things. Yes. Whereas I yeah. think yeah. following it, it often becomes we've received a cry for help or do you know what I mean? They're pulled into action. Um, I always like the sort of absurdity of the fact that wherever the Doctor goes, something will happen. Can you give us a, a bit of a synopsis for this episode? Sure. I said 60 seconds, but no, I'm not counting it. I'm <laughs> we'll, we'll see how I do. We'll count it later on, like once we're finished. But, um, okay, basically, um, the Doctor and Donna have landed on a planet. They are at a market and they're shopping and you know just taking in the sights. And they become kind of separated when Donna is approached at the doorway of a shop by a shopkeeper who is it's a return of the actress who plays Chando from yeah. um, Utopia. I hadn't um, realised that until I look, kind of looked up the Wikipedia for this episode. Oh God, I remember as soon as it was broadcast, I was like, that's Chando. And she's told that she can have her future read. So she's a fortune teller and she refuses the call at first, but she says it's free for someone with red hair. So Donna goes in and when she sits down with the fortune teller, she says, I'll tell you your future, but you have to tell me something of your past. There was a man, a very special man, and your life changed and drills down to a decision that Donna made that changed her life and allowed her to meet the doctor that if she had made the other decision, they would never have met. But what Donna doesn't know is that there's something going on here where there's a creature lurking in the background and the fortune teller starts to become really forceful and asks her to actually make the opposite decision. So what happens is on the day that Donna would have met the... Well, not on the day that Donna would have met the doctor, but Donna met the doctor through her workplace. And there was a point at which she was going for the interview to that job and her mum, who is quite harsh with her, is trying to force her to go for another job. And if she turned right, she would have gone for that other job but instead she turns left and she goes to H.C. Clements which is where she meets the doctor and they're on a way bride. The fortune teller forces her to make the opposite decision so she turns right instead and she goes to work for Chowdhury who's a photocopier business manager and because of that she never meets the doctor and what happens is she doesn't save the doctor from overdoing his retaliation against the Rachnos and the runaway bride. So because she's not there to stop him, he floods the Tams barrier to destroy the Rachnos, but kills himself in the process. And then what happens for the rest of the episode is that we then get dramatic events that have happened prior to Donna meeting the Doctor, but shown from the perspective of what would have happened if the Doctor wasn't there to save the day. Mm. So we have the Christmas star, obviously, attacking the city and the Doctor dying and then we have the Titanic from the other Christmas episode with Kylie um, lands on Buckingham Palace and there's a nuclear explosion from its reactor and it destroys most of London um, there are the Atmos cars from the, um, the Santana Stratagem etc 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 and Donna is and living in a world in which everything is absolutely not right and it's increasingly becoming more and more dystopian because the Doctor wasn't there to save the day and lo and behold Rose, who has prior to this been trapped in a parallel universe, has appeared on this earth and is following Donna, but has been very cagey about why. And as it turns out, the stars are going out across the universe and Donna has to kind of sacrifice herself in order to put things right and force herself to make the, the right decision by turning left. 
and we'll probably get into the ins and outs of that later, but that's basically the synopsis. So she corrects, course corrects this and overpowers the fortune teller and the creature, which is one of the tricksters brigade, which is on her back during this time. And the doctor, she, she returns to the planet that she was on with the doctor and this sort of bubble universe that was created around her is, is destroyed. Very good synopsis. It, wasn't <laughs> but it was a synopsis. It was, it was, it was good, it was good. Um, what are the things that you like about this episode? We can kind of go through bit by bit and talk yeah, about sure. stuff that you like. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, the first thing is that it's a Doctor Light episode. Um, I mm. think um, Davies knows how to keep you wanting more by removing the thing you love most. Yes. And T- Tennant is a fantastic Doctor and he's just so watchable on screen. But taking him away for an episode leaves us wanting the Doctor, mm. but it also gives room for Catherine Tate to shine. And it's just a very clever... It's the, it's the kind of episode that you can only get away with once. So the idea that we get this run through of the greatest hits of, of RTD's run, but as seen from the perspective of the Doctor not there to save them, it allows us to see the rest of the, the run from a different perspective, from a kind mm. of darker perspective. Mm. Um, and it, it, it allows him to lean into this real dystopian thing that he otherwise doesn't often do and gives him a way to do it and a way to undo it at the end. So he's not taking us forever into this horrible reality. We yes. get to explore it for an episode and heal everything, but it's also done in such a way that it feels legit, it feels concrete, it feels satisfying when you reach the conclusion, and it also prepares us for the finale. I mean, it's a very, very, very well-structured, a very, very clever episode. And the first time I saw it, I was just absolutely blown away. And I have watched it so many times since. I've downloaded the script, I've read the script. I mean, I just, I, I think it's just, it's a piece of art. It's a piece of art that's contingent on everything else that we have experienced about the run. So yes. it wouldn't really ever stand up on its own necessarily, but that's the point. It's not designed to. It's contingent on our love of the show up to this point. Yes. And I think that um, that sort of dark, that dark perspective that he brings to this, every time I watch this episode, I am sort of taken aback by the fact that he kills off everyone we know from all of the shows. And there's, I mean, the very specific bit, and it's like, you just, there's a confidence to this that is over, like, I don't know how you get away with this, but it's sort of presented in background noise on a news story that um, instead of Martha going to space to fight the Jadoon or the Doctor Mm -hmm. and Martha, uh-huh. Going to space to to fight the Jadoon. It was um, go to the moon to fight the Jadoon. Yeah, um, the Jadoon it, and the <laughs> it was um, Sarah Jane mm-hmm. and all of the kids from the Sarah Jane adventures, mm-hmm. and it's and it's that they get killed off. And like as does Martha. So yeah, yeah. All of Sarah Jane's cast plus one of the companions are wiped out immediately in just one line. And it's like the entire child cast of the children yeah. spin off. Yeah. In one line in the first sort of 15 minutes, it's like so dark. Here's what you're watching, and yeah. <laughs> strap and in. And this is the thing that so, this is for me, this is something that I think people should pay attention, attention to with Davies, who it allows us to really sort of investigate some very, very dark, very, very mature themes. But it's done in such a way that children could still watch that episode and not understand that, therefore, mm. not be overly worried or perturbed by it and 
There's stuff that comes later on, which is even more brutal. But the fact that those sort of ideas are delivered in that way, I think not only works with the narrative because it's Donna that we're following and she doesn't know who any of these people are, but it also works because we're not cutting to like Sarah Jane and the kids all screaming and you know mm, what I mean? Mm. It's, it's told to us in a line so we as adults can be like, I mean, you know, every time I watch it, when I first watched it, but every single time I've watched it since, including just the other day, as soon as you hear those bits, you know, um, Martha, my colleague Martha was trying to, you know, help people. Um, Sarah Jane has died and then it just sort of, you hear the kids' names get mentioned and it's like, oh my God, like that is just so brutal, but it's mm. just words. And I think that's the thing, it's, it, there's a way of delivering who in, a, in a, a way that allows for it to still be a family show. And that is mm. where every member of the family can get something out of it. And that's what he does so beautifully in this episode particularly. I think I think on that little bit with the the Sarah Jane and the kids, like uh, presented as a news story, mm. it's that um, there is such a full world to the Russell T Davies Doctor yeah. Who, where like they bring back. I, I'm sure the character is called Oliver Morganstern. I don't yes, know why yes, that's still yes. a man. <laughs> he's like a he's like a, a he's got about five lines yeah. in the the Jadoon on the Moon episode, yeah, yeah. but they bring him back to talk about his colleague mm. Martha and how brave she was and. Yeah. He's the only survivor of yeah. that of that sort of adventure, and the other sort of character that pops up in this episode is Trinity Wells, um, previously known as Mal Loop, um, the American newscaster, yes. um, yeah. who genuinely, I guess we'll talk about this later. But Russell T Davies is coming back, and that's who I want him to bring back with him. Like she's yeah, got to be. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing that really struck me watching it again is just how much he builds out a world for who. Mm. And it's things like Unit, it's things like Martha still being around, it's things like the the, the sort of um, the British news channel, which is mm. not BBC 24, yet is obviously done in such a way that like that's obviously what we're intended to think of. And then the American one, which is not CNN, you know, like... <laughs> It is a world, it's a fully fleshed out world and things that happen to the characters that we follow on the show are witnessed by many, many other people and everyone else has reactions to it. And, you know, there are later runs and episodes of Who where it really just feels like it's an empty world full of cardboard people and the Mm. only people who matter are the Doctor and the companions. And RTD's run is not like that at all. And this episode, I think... is an, almost an opportunity to let him kind of explore that even more. What happens if we take all of the known characters off the, the board mm. and can we still maintain interest and stuff? And I think he proves it, you know, it's, it's a fully realised world. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, he, he does it, not in this episode, but in the, the ones that follow it as well, this, this sort of tradition in the finales of mm-hmm. having someone watch the telly mm-hmm. and seeing how, like, celebrities and like and basically mm. seeing how popular culture is reacting yeah. to what is happening like in the episode in, yeah. that follows this it's like Richard Dawkins and Paul O'Grady Paul O'Grady yeah, talking yeah. about the moon like all the planets disappearing. how much did I have to drink <laughs> last night you know and, and the audience all laughing and stuff so mm. it was like obviously it was working with the production teams of those shows you mm. know it was like I, I, and I think that's it just, I think that's, you, you kind of touching on this, the demographic of the time and people who were like older fans of the original show. 
And I think it's that kind of thing that puts them off RTDs run because they see that as like naff, embarrassing, childish, poppy, all that stuff. But to me, that was what really worked for his show was that it's not just a realised sci-fi world, it's our mm. world, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. when you have Big Brother in there and how to look good naked and, or the other one, you know, Trini and Susanna. Trini and Susanna, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, yes, this is like pop cultural reality TV, but it's like that's what ties it to reality. That's the culture around us. And to, to sort of deny that is quite kind of hipstery, kind of snobby, I think. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, um, I, I want my who to be, like, full of high concepts and clever ideas. I don't want it to be full of, you know, pop UK pop culture. Yeah. Um, and I think it lacks that later on, you know? Mm. The sense that everyone is responding to these things increases the scale of the threat because it feels more real. Yeah, yeah. You know? So, so later on, we get the, the the fact that all of the Torchwood team is down now yeah. as well, like dead. When we see the Titanic, the Titanic being blown up, I think is it's that it? The, um, when the fire, the fire across the sky that's blown, yes, that's burning up the atmos gas. Yeah, they they have teleported to the Centauran spaceship and they have died in the resulting firestorm that sort of burns away all the gas and Jack has used the transmat to travel to the Centauran homeworld and effectively try and go up against the Centauran high command on his own mm. um, and you know they're wiped out and yeah it's I, I think it I think it's at that point as well as like the idea that like Captain Jack is going to go and fight the Centaurans I think like in a lot in both of the spin-offs Sarah Jane Adventures and Torchwood like they have sort of stand-ins for the Doctor. Yeah. Like Sarah Jane basically becomes the Doctor. She's got sure. a sonic. She's got a sonic lipstick because it's very camp, <laughs> and she's sort of you know the older figure and sort of yeah. guiding about with these younger companions essentially. But I think I think this episode kind of shows you they feel the same role as the Doctor, but they're not the Doctor. And yeah. like you know, Captain Jack is going to go and fight the Sontarans, but he's probably not going to come out of that. In yeah. one piece. Yeah. He's going to die as <laughs> the face. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so he'll survive, but he's just ahead. Uh yeah, so so what other things do you like about this episode? Um so there's two things I'll say just now and you can remind me about the, the second one as we go on. The first thing is the space that it gives for Catherine Tate mm-hmm. um and her performance. And the second is the way that it sort of expands the notion of the multiverse and who I think mm. Mm. Um, so the first thing is Catherine Tate was a real it was a real eye-opener for me watching her on this this season um, and I think most people had only ever known her as a comic actress before and she was very very good at that very clever very sort of versatile with it and everything but and she really plays that up in in, in who you know like mm kind of over-the-top comedy at times, um, slapstick almost, you know. But particularly this episode, I was just blown away by her range as an actor. Mm. Um, so there's, so basically during this episode, she's got this insectoid creature stuck to her back that she can't see and that most other people can't, but some people notice it. And over the course of the episode, it's, it's increasingly freaking her out that people keep pointing to her and saying, what's that on your back? Um, mm. There's the really, really over-the-top bit with the maid when, when they go to the <laughs> yes. hotel where she's just standing <laughs> from a distance pointing at her with, like, you know, furrowed eyebrows pointing at the spider on her back or whatever. Um, and yell- yelling in Spanish. Yelling because, in Spanish. Because, because she's, 
a major Morocco. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a different time. Very, it was a different... era, do you know what I mean? Um, and I don't feel like it was, you know, it, it feels like uh, Davies is always deliberately commenting on these things. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. think it's like, um, it's sort of fallen into stereotypes so much. Although she does read a little stereotypical, but um, so Donna is becoming increasingly agitated at the idea that she's potentially living with this thing on her back and she can't see it. And when she finally sort of, through a series of sort of things happening, she realises that she needs to go to Rose and mm. say, I'm ready and I, I, I'm coming with you and I'm, I want to do what I need to to save the universe, basically. And they have... So she's working... Rose is working with Unit. So Rose has come from a parallel dimension. She's working with Unit and they have found the TARDIS under the, tam, the Thames. So they have... And I love the, the, the line, we've scraped off the surface technology. Yes. Um, so they've scraped off this, they don't know how the TARDIS works, but they've scraped off enough technology from the surface of it to create this sort of a lodestone thing, which is a series of mirrors and cables and things in a circle. And Rose tells Donna that if she goes in there, she can see this thing on her back. And it's the culmination of Donna's absolute distress because she this Donna hasn't gone on the journey, the slower journey with the doctor mm. to sort of open her eyes to the multitude of things threats and everything that's out there and she's put in this lodestone and she is turned on and she finally sees this thing on her back and the emotion in her acting at that point the 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 sheer terror the sort of enormity of it all and how small she is in it is just incredible like it absolutely blows me away Mm. she's an incredible actor like she's got so much more range than I would have given her credit for, you know. And I think pulling Tennant away for an episode allows us to get into what is to become Donna's final episodes with a real appreciation of who she is as a character and who who Catherine Tate is as an actor. And I don't think we would have necessarily ever got that with Tennant there because of the way they bounce off each other. Mm. They work as a duo, you know. But this really just lets her really shine, you know. I think yeah. you really feel for Donna. I think, like, this Donna doesn't know, and, and ultimately it's revealed that Donna never does know how special she is, but this Donna really has no idea, and the way that she's introduced to that world through all of these really dystopian, cataclysmic things happening around her, but then the idea that she's been walking about this whole time with, like, an insect creature on her back, and she can't get rid of it, yeah. and she can't see it unless she's in this... I mean, it's just... You just, I just, you empathise with her so much, you know. And when she's sort of sh- screaming and shouting at Rose, yeah, just, it just, it's like a kick in the gut. I think it's yeah. just absolutely incredible. I, um, I think, yeah. I think as well with that in mind, though, as well. Like, I was definitely one of those people who I like. I think it's the Christmas in, no, it's the, is it the Christmas Invasion? It's called the Oh, the Runaway Bride, runaway the Bride. first, the first, yeah, the one that she's um, first on a Christmas episode. Mm-hmm. And I remember them announcing that she was going to be like the full time companion for season yeah. four. And I was like, mm-hmm. not this, please. Yeah. Like, because you do, you know her as this comedy actor. Yeah. And, you know, Donna as a character in that episode is fun for one mm-hmm. episode. But it's like, how are they going to do Shugopshi. 13 hours of this yelling yeah. kind of. Fairly one note, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it really, really works. And yeah. I think it works. Because the writing is so good, and also because she sells it, um, yeah, totally. you know, anyone else that might not have 
quite have worked. She's incredible. She's got more range than a lot of the companions. No, I would agree. Although I, I will say that in this episode, you do see such a different side to Billy Piper. And like oh, yeah. Yeah. Rose, Rose is the doctor in this episode. Yeah. She's this kind of ethereal, like rugged mm-hmm. sci-fi adventurer. Yeah. And and it really, really works. I yeah, think. and I totally agree. I had a note which was just something like, I love this Rose. Yeah. Um, like, there's just a bit where she's just really commanding and she's sort of, she's she's totally doing the Doctor thing of being obfuscating quite a lot, not telling Donna the actual full truth because she yeah. can't, but yeah. also being quite sort of empathetic with her and sort of apologetic and things like that and like it's just so lovely to see Billy Piper get to act like that and to, mm. to see this different spin on Rose who now is long in the tooth and has travelled across parallel universes and stuff, mm. do you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, it's and it is that as well, it's that taking that sort of step sideways and looking at it from a slightly different angle allows us to see these characters differently as well because yeah. this Donna is a different Donna and this Rose is not a different Rose, but a, a, a grown-up Rose, effectively. And how about the multiverse stuff? Yeah, so um, the multiverse is something that Davies mentions quite fairly regularly and has quite cannily contained from ever becoming too convoluted by saying that the Time Lords used to manage the access to the multiverse, but because of the time war, the walls of the multiverse have come down, or like the walls mm. have come up between the, 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 the universes and the multiverse or whatever. Um, so travel between the two of them is now next to impossible. But we get the, the hint of it in Father's Day, um, yes. where Rose prevents her father being killed, and ordinarily the Time Lords would have dealt with that and sort of sealed the problem that is caused by changing that timeline but instead you get the reapers coming in to sort of feed off that temporal wind kind of thing um, but it's not full multiverse but in this episode what we get is a bubble parallel universe which is something that comes up later in Who and I think it's a really nice way to tackle the almost essential nature of parallel universes in the multiverse and Who without opening the doors to like absolute chaos mm. if that makes sense so i think what turn left does is almost gives you a hint of an even bigger world again or bigger yes. universe again that, yes that we don't play around in in who but i think is essentially working the background and if i was ever working on who would make it part of the show <laughs> but it's got to be done properly i think you know i think like to just introduce the multiverse and then have like you know, versions of things that they've seen before constantly and stuff. I don't think would work in Who so much. It needs it needs a structure, a narrative structure like the Time War in order to contain it. And I think Davies does a really great job. And I think this, you know, for all it's a sort of kind of capsule episode, like contained, low budget and all the rest of it, the ideas that it talks about, they really allow your imagination to run wild and stuff. You yeah. know? So the idea that the walls of reality are breaking down and that there's something big happening at the edge of reality where the stars are disappearing and stuff, the, the scale of that without showing us any of it is just beautiful to me. So mm. when you've got Donna and Wilf looking through the telescope and he's pointing at Orion's belt or whatever and he can't see it and then we finally look up and you just literally see all the stars going out in the sky. Mm. It's like... It's such a beautiful way of ramping you up for 
for the finale. Yeah. We don't know what that is. We have no idea what it is. But because we're down there on the ground level with Donna, I think it makes it bigger in scope than if we mm. were sort of like cut into worlds that were dying. And do you know what I mean? Like mm. just having those tiny little stars blink out kind of shows her insignificance. Yeah. I also think that um, just with that little scene in mind, like that stuff with Wilf and the telescope and yeah. uh, is so lovely. Mm. I think one of the things that really works about Russell D. Davies' Doctor Who and particularly Donna is mm. the families. Yeah. That, that Donna's mum is a very difficult and complex character who's mm. not necessarily nice and supportive mm. and is kind of cruel to her yeah. at points in this episode um, and, and obviously has her own struggles. Yeah. And then just Wilf, like Donna's granddad, being like the absolute character you need in the middle of that to give yeah. you something warm to, mm-hmm. to, to gravitate towards. Like mm. there's a tiny little scene, Wilf like wins a raffle or something. So they get to be outside of London for Christmas yeah. when the Titanic is going to land on, mm-hmm. uh, on Buckingham Palace, I think, yeah. and blow up like a big nuclear bomb. But um, there's a tiny little moment in that where they're kind of heading into the hotel and Wilf is wearing two sets yeah. of reindeer antlers, <laughs> which is the absolute... Yeah, that, that's what you need. Big that- granddad energy. <laughs> like when uh, Donna's mum is like, take those things off and he's, he's like, I will not. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, beautiful, beautiful. It's, you just, and you need that, you need that. And I think, I think he's what makes actually a lot of what follows work. Mm. Like the, um, essentially that everybody who lives in London is now a refugee. Yeah. And has to be moved to the north and it's Wilf for me that makes a lot of that work because he's clearly somebody with a past we get this yeah. sense that he was you know around during the second world war yeah, yeah. and and he but he has such a warmth to him and just sort of a, a that sort of blitz spirit that sometimes I found really off-putting and mm. and I think there is a, a thing in like British culture of of slightly over kind of leaning on that that mm. blitz spirit and that that kind of I mean I think we could really fetishize the second world war which was oh God, yeah. Yeah. clearly totally fucking agree. awful for everyone. Yeah. Um I think there's a nationalistic thing in there as well, you know, which makes it really uncomfortable for me. But I think you're right. I think Will from Bernard Cribbins, the actor particularly I always get the impression that he's not someone who genuinely believes in that blitz spirit type of thing, mm. but it's mm. someone who's always willing to like maintain a sense of positivity for everyone else around them. Mm. And that's the difference, I think. It's not that he's sort of eternally optimistic or that it's like, oh, we've been through this before, we can do this, you know, stiff up our lip and stuff like that. I think it's more just like he needs to, if he, because he is that kind of warm centre for the family and for for what happens in um, Turn Left, really, um, he's the thing that kind of prevents it from becoming fully bleak. Yeah. And he that, that's his job, really, is to sort of try and keep everyone else going. And I think you're absolutely right. I think it really works. Um, I want to talk about that bit particularly because that's it's one of the, the standout parts of, of Turn Left for me. So when London is wiped out, everyone's lost their home and the majority of London is dead. And those who remain are billeted, so they're told where they have to go and stay, and the uh, noble family go to Leeds. 
And when they arrive there, they're, they're issued with a house and they, they go to it and they realise that they're not the only people living in it. There's actually a number of families there and they're all squeezed mm. in and like the nobles have to live in the kitchen and stuff. And the Italian guy, an older Italian guy who's like eternally jovial when they first meet him, um, he sort of introduces himself, introduces the rest of the people and becomes this kind of like comedy character for a while who tries to make them feel really welcome and things. And then there's this scene where Donna is saying goodbye to him and he's, you know, keeping his spirits up. You can tell that there's something wrong and Donna just doesn't really seem to understand what's happening. And he says that they're going away to a labour camp and that mm. they're going to be given work and it's England for the English. And it's only when they saying goodbye to Wilf and Wilf starts crying and salutes him. And we get this one shot of that actor and his face says absolutely everything. And it's like, to me, it's that thing of really earning a moment like that. So like everything that's come before, he's this almost overly jovial guy, um, just full of bonhomie and slagging off the young kids in the place, but being like, oh, I'm only kidding and that. And saying to them, you stay in the kitchen, you have, if you, you, you have the cooker, you, if you get cold, you've got the fridge if you get warm it's fun it's fun mm. you know and then you get that look on his face and it's him and Wilf know what's happening and it is that they are being sent to a concentration camp and yeah. because of everything that's happened Britain has become fully fascist and yeah it dawns on Donna that that's what's happening when Wilf says it's happening again and she starts to chase after the army vehicle that has all of these people who weren't born in, in Britain being shipped off to this camp. Mm. And it's the willingness to go to that place that makes Turn Left really work for me. You, the seeds of his later show, Years and Years, are in there. I think Years Absolutely. and Years is almost entirely an evolution of this one episode. Mm -hmm. um, that dystopia through a slightly different lens, mm. through a comedy drama lens. But it's that willingness to, it takes it so far, like if the, and this is what changes the stakes, you know, like if the doctor wasn't here, then this world is screwed. It's absolutely screwed. Mm -hmm. um, there are complex reasons as to why Britain ends up in that position, but nevertheless, what he's saying, and it's not ever spoken out loud, but what we're saying is Britain has become fully fascist. Mm -hmm. And the idea that that's the backdrop to everything that follows just makes Donna's change of heart and because that is what that's what does it when you know when mm. she, she experiences this and then she sees the stars going out and that's when she says to Rose I'm ready and it takes something really really big to make that change in a character to change their motivation and their willingness to do something like this and I think the the ability to lean into the kind of like fascist imagery and the, the idea of the concentration camp which is always off screen and is never mentioned Mm. It relies on our knowledge of history and all of that to fill in those blanks is absolutely beautiful to me because, again, it prevents it from ever becoming a show that's too mature for a family audience. Yeah, yeah. But it allows those members of the family or those of us as individuals who are older who watch it to absolutely get the weight and magnitude of what's been discussed here. And it just changes the stakes in Doctor Who completely for me. No, it really does. And it's so, yeah, I would absolutely agree. I think it's handled so deftly mm -hmm. all of that stuff because it because yeah it could have become i mean it's fucking bleak like it yeah, is really totally, bleak totally. but i think you know in somebody else's hands or you just slightly push that too yeah. far yeah. and you can't kind of you can't come back to sort uh, of jolly hockey sticks yeah yeah that's kind it. of 
and you can't go back to the very daft adventure that is about to follow. Yeah. The the stuff that kind of follows that once Do- once Donna has agreed to to go and meet with Rose, mm. I think is really nice as well. There, I'd, I'd sort of never really recognize. Oh, the one thing that I do want to have a shout out to is because they're living in this big old cold house, mm-hmm. Donna is now in a long coat yes. at all times. And she's just become a sort of sci-fi hero looking. Mm-hmm. And it's the it's the long coat that like Angel would wear or yeah, Captain yeah. Jack would wear. Or the, that or kind the of doctor. Or the doctor. The yeah. wears the long coat regularly, you know. It's so I think that the costuming in this episode is doing a lot of work and, and yeah, that yeah. is beautiful. Yeah, um, I mean even just the little additions of the circuitry when she's travelling through town, mm, mm. Um, which is just basically circuit like broken broken apart circuitry that's attached to her coat, but it just works. Like yes. it's it's not a TARDIS, it's machinery that's been scraped off that and and they're trying to make it work, you know, they're they're um, sort of kit bashing. <laughs> Yeah, time yeah. travel out of this other time time machine, and the fact that it's just using the coat that she has, and it sort of it becomes bulkier, but it hides a lot of the mechanics and stuff mm. like that. Like I think it's just really it's so subtle, but it's a really a great way to costume someone in a sci-fi show without taking it to the other level of sci-fi. You know, without putting it in like a full space age uniform or whatever. Mm. Like it just mm. it's, it's, it keeps the everyday the quotidian as part of it all the way through. You know. And I think I think his his Doctor Who had such a specific look to it as well that yeah. that is very very not polished and not kind of it's not trying to be um, kind of Star Wars or to yeah. be American sci-fi like it is yeah. it feels sort of there's something about it I hate to say quintessentially British but it does uh-huh. feel it feels like it was made here in yeah. twenty in two thousand five production values of uh, kind of your average BBC drama. Mm, rather mm. than like obviously rather than you know that highly polished kind of American production and I think that the show deserves to have good production values but I think that's gone too far in some ways as well because there is something about filming it like it's a sitcom at times that just makes it feel more real yeah you know um I think once you get into the high gloss and the dark um you know low contrast very very dark kind of lighting and neons and things like that i mean it looks great but it just takes you away from that core of the show it starts to become quite generic for me i think yeah it doesn't set itself apart Um, and i think almost suggests that it's a wee bit embarrassed about its origins and stuff the scene that follows that that i just really loved watching it this time was donna going into the dead tardis Mm -hmm. like it's the it's the i found it genuinely quite moving but it's also the best bigger on the inside yeah. reaction, yes. which, is a, which is a sort of a recurring trope in Doctor Who, people mm-hmm. going into the TARDIS and realising it's bigger on the inside and coming out and going mm-hmm. back in again. And, and it's just her reaction to it is, is awe and it's yeah. lovely. And then she comes out and asks, can I have a cup of coffee? Uh-huh. It's totally. just lovely. I agree fully. I think it's awe and a sense of humour. Mm, she she yes. almost gets the cosmic humour of it, do you know what I mean? Like, um, and that to me just sums up Donna. Like the fact that she doesn't say anything, but she's just sort of gasping and smiling and walking around it and going back in again. And like it's just beautiful. Like the fact that she doesn't say it 
you know, because I think that's something that we're always looking for when someone sees the TARDIS for the first time. We're going to see mm. it's bigger on the inside, and they play on that now over the years and stuff. And I think just to have her not really say anything is is just great, and it just makes her so important as well because it's like she's not losing her shit at the yeah. concept. She's just like, oh my god, this is mental, you know? Yeah, yeah. But that's very Donna, and I think that's that's why turn left works it's why the finale works it's why the season with her works it's like she's ready for all of this mm. you know it's mm. why i have such a problem with the the way that donna's character is left even though with hindsight and rewatching, i do think it really really squeezes the emotional reaction mm. out of us mm. because of what we lose but i feel she deserves better just because she's such a good companion and yes. because of the nature of her the fact that she has a temp from chiswick but she's really more than able for all of this cosmic nonsense that's happening around her, you know? I guess kind of spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't gone as far as the finale yet, but Donna <laughs> Donna has her mind wiped, so mm. she, she can't remember any of her adventures with the Doctor. And that, that I think, is a, he tells us that all season. We know that's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Um, if you're kind of watching it and watching Donna throughout mm. that season, you know that's coming. Um but I think there is a, yeah, I find it really hard. Like it, it, it emotionally puts you through the ringer mm-hmm. and I think in a really satisfying, dramatic way, but it is like, it's hard to know that that has happened yeah. to the character. I do think, um, you know, I think increasingly since Donna, we've had a lot of, I think I think they've struggled to get rid of companions. I think yeah. Stephen Moffat struggles to find a satisfying way to because why would you why would you when yeah. you're traveling with the doctor like why would you ever stop? Give it up or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean I think it is a tricky one, but I think Moffat takes the opposite approach really, which is to make all of the companions incredibly special in the universe. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's it doesn't work for me. Um, no. and I think my reaction to Donna um, having her mind wiped to the end is has changed so much over the years, back and forth and back and forth, but I think ultimately the best thing that I can say about it is I'm raging with it because I love her so much and that's mm. a success, do you know what I mean? Yeah. We don't always have to get the outcome for characters that we desire. The emotional response to Donna's sort of eventual end, if you like, is absolute grief you know, when she, when we see her, she wakes up and she phones her pal and she has no idea what's been going on and she's sort of brushing off uh, the doctor and she's just back to this gobby loudmouth, do you know what I mean? Mm. It's absolute grief. And the thing is, that's a success in, in a storytelling sense. The, Davies almost leaves us hating him for what he's done to him. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really, really powerful and it's really confident storytelling. Like, he doesn't have to be liked here, you know... It's it's important that we get that breadth of reactions and outcomes for the companions. And Donna is left there as that companion who will never come back. She can never come back. Mm. You know what I mean? I mean, she did come back at the end of time, and I don't particularly like how it's handled, although it was nice to see her back. But, you know, Martha could come back easily. Rose could come back, really, mm. realistically. Mm. Donna couldn't. And I think it's right that there are examples of that in yeah. the yeah. doctor's history, you know? Um she was so good and she went out on a high and then that's it forever. And I think there's something real about that as well. 
I think mm. it almost gets across that sense that when you stop travelling with the doctor, you can never go back. Yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And Donna is the, the one that proves that to us by having her absolutely do that at the cost of never remembering anything about adventures. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's an inverse, really, you know. Um, and it's it's brutal. Um, is there is there anything that you don't like about this episode? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here's a belter. One thing <laughs> that I don't like. So there's the bit where Rose is telling Donna what she has to do. Mm. And she's saying to her, you're going to have to travel in time and you have to make the other decisions. So you've got to turn left. Mm. And there's an edit of her where she's like physically turning her arm left <laughs> and it cuts in on that. And it's like she's shown Donna left is this way. Mm. And it, it's, it's, it's really dramatic. And Murray Gold's score at the time is like beefed up and it's all really dramatic. And I get it, we're cutting quickly and we're like building up to this climax and stuff like that, but it's just so stupid. Yes. Like she fully sort of like, nobody would move their arm this way. And she mm. fully sort of like swipes her arm to the left and she and it cuts in, you know, and it's like, it, you, you get to see it twice. And she's like, so remember, turn left, you know? And it's just, every time I see it, I'm just like, dumb. Yeah, <laughs> but it's such a small thing, do you know. What I mean, like, I don't. It's not an actual criticism. It's kind of nice that it's there because it's just lol. Is it, I, it's, this is not a dislike either. But there's something every time I watch it when Donna when Donna does kind of time travel and go back to you know to make herself turn left. Yeah. She um, lands in Sutton Court and she's mm -hmm. like half a mile away from where she needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, but there's like a guy with a boombox mm -hmm. playing like very specific music yep. walking past. And it, every time I watch it, I'm like, what's that there for? Like, wh why are we being shown this? It feels like, yeah, I just don't know what it is. I don't know why he's there. Or, it's, it's very strange. It's, it's a weird one. It stands out to me every time. And it stands out to me because I feel like it's, an, and I might be wrong here, but I feel like it's a nod to Fifth Element. Because it sounds oh. very like Eric Serra's sound uh, score for Fifth Element. And oh. there's a particular bit, and it's like sort of, he's scoring like almost diegetic music um, in it. So it's, you know, it's happening around the characters or whatever. And it's the way that it sort of comes up in volume and then drops as the character mm -hmm. comes on and off the screen. To me, it's just a sort of like, you're back in the real world, you're back in London and it's like, it's urban and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Um, but it is, it is weird because it almost sort of like focuses right in on it. So it's like, I, I, I see it, I hear it every single time. It's, I feel yeah. like it's a little nod, but I, I mean, it's such a, it would be a pointless nod if it is. <laughs> <laughs> like only three of us get the reference. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't and I love that film. <laughs> um, the thing that I, you know, a scene that I really like as well is that it's that moment when, you know, Donna's gone through this whole journey in one episode. Yeah. She's made this decision. She's doing this. And she's telling Rose, basically, I'm doing this because you've told me I'm going to die. Yeah. And if I do this, I'm not going to die. And that's yeah. right, isn't it? And it's when Rose kind of doesn't say anything and Donna realises like she's this Donna is not going to live no, and she it's, says I'm sorry Rose mm. says I'm sorry just as she travels which is the doctor's kind of catchphrase for a lot of of Russell T Davies doctor. doctor yeah mm. Mm. and it's um yeah it's just a lovely scene I, ju I think her performance there is beautiful and then that ending where she so Rose whispers something in this dying Donna's ear mm -hmm. And our Donna back in kind of 
the Dream right, the, universe, if you like. Yeah, yeah, the in, the, in the, the main Doctor Who universe, um, is, you know, she is reminded of that, mm-hmm. and she tells the Doctor that she said Bad Wolf, yeah. um, and they come outside, and everything has turned to, all writing has turned yeah. to the words Bad Wolf, they go into the TARDIS and the cloister bell is ringing, oh, and it's so which red and... fucking brilliant every oh, time. <laughs> I just lose my shit still. Like it's that... why we always end up watching the the finale episode. Yes, it's yes, for sure. Because there's no clean break. Like ending on Bad Wolf, mm. ending on like Bad Wolf was the finale of the first season of its return. The cloister bell, I don't think, was really used in the the new run until this point. Not so much. It's, a, it's an old Who thing. That's very Time Lord mythology and stuff. And the fact that, like, Bad Wolf, who scattered herself through time and who had deliberately done that in the finale of the, the, the first season, changed words to Bad Wolf and stuff. The idea that Bad Wolf had left this message at this point for the Doctor, like, mm. it just thrills me. And I think it's what proves to me that um, writers and showrunners of Who need to be writing new mythology for Who. Yes, it's when you call back to new mythology that you get the biggest thrill. Calling yes. back to mythology that's like 40 years old, 30 years old and stuff like that is like a thrill in a way, but it's much more of an intellectual one. Whereas like Bad Wolf was still so relatively recent to us that when you get that hit at the end, you're just absolutely desperate for the next episode. Mm. Like utterly desperate. Like I just, I love it. I, I love it every time. Like when Tenant runs out of the fortune teller shop and you just see the posters and signs and it's just cutting the TARDIS, all of the writing on the TARDIS says Bad Wolf. It's just mm. like, um, and we, yeah, and the cloister, he's in at the TARDIS, the red light and the cloister belt and he's like, this can only mean one thing, the end of reality or the end of time mm. itself or something mm. like that. And it's just like, yes. Like it sets the stakes just so high. Beautiful. I am. Um, this is such a stupid personal anecdote to add to this incredibly complex episode. But um, at the time that this episode aired, mm. I ran Patrick Wolf's official message mm. board yep. and um, briefly changed the header for the message board <laughs> so that it flickered between Patrick Wolf and Bad Wolf, oh, <laughs> like, just in the same font and everything. And like, yeah, just. I feel like there was probably quite some crossover. Oh, there was a lot of crossover. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that is as much part of this episode as as anything else though as well is the coming up trailer like yeah. it's like bad wolf cloister bell coming up continued or, and then you yeah. get like fucking you you see all these flickers of like fucking daleks are there yeah, sarah yeah. jane torchwood's in it martha's there martha's yeah. mum's in it for some reason mm. <laughs> who was missing her i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah no it's 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 beautiful. I mean, I think they, they really knew what they had on their hands with the show at that point. They mm. knew how to prime us and tease us. And I think, you know, the fact that that, um, you know, coming next trailer ends with the, the focus on the eye stock of the Supreme Dalek, mm. which mm. is not in any way the reveal of that next coming episode yes. is yes. so good because the reveal, spoilers, of the next episode is that Davros is back for the first time in New Who mm. and the idea that they completely throws off the scent by being like, oh my god, can you even believe it? The Daleks are back and it's like mm. it's not that, you know it's so much bigger. On that on that kind of recent mythology stuff though, I think the thing that makes those episodes that follow it really work is 
that it's Dalek Khan, um, who's kind of part of Russell T. Davies' four core Daleks. Yeah, Um, the Cult of Skaro. The Cult of Skaro, the kind of, they're like sort of emotionally intelligent Daleks. And like, we'd seen him emergency temporal shift Mm. at one point earlier, and then he's, he's back in these, finale episodes absolutely fried and sort of mad and weird (laughs) prophetic and yes yeah and that's that's what a dalek should look like for me i don't i my my very firm political opinion is that you shouldn't do cgi internal daleks they should always be made out of rubber like i totally agree i think they have to be a physical effect like a little puppet Yeah. yeah, yeah. They don't have to be spectacular looking either, do you know what I mean? And the thing no. is, I think we've proved with later Who episodes that you can you can do a lot more with the, the actual puppets themselves as well, mm. because you can make them out of like silicon. I've been watching Face Off, obviously. So <laughs> you can make them out of like silicon or gelatin or whatever, which are translucent, which mm. they're not really in RTD's run. They're a little bit more opaque. Um, but I, I totally agree. They need to be a physical construction that people can interact with and stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But Can is amazing, and I think this... I think the end of time for me jumped the shark, right? Um, so that's the double finale of the entire run of Tenant's run and RTD's run. And it jumped the shark for me with the introdu- reintroduction of the Time Lords and the Master mm. and just how far it takes it. And that's a whole other conversation for itself. The most satisfying conclusion to his run for me is Turn Left, Stolen Earth and Journey's End. And I yeah. feel like it was the natural place for that to happen and I feel like it was probably designed to on some level yeah but I think so there was scheduling stuff that meant that he was kind of asked to write these specials afterwards and I think the flow changes slightly because of that mm. but to me what this finale does and you know turn left kind of leads into that and everything is it retains the time war as this unassailable event mm. and yet shows us ways in which we can still have it be relevant and meaningful to the narrative. So the fact that uh, Khan has been driven mad by his temporal re-entry into the Time War, and which is supposed to be impossible because it's time-locked, and has survived, and now has this sort of like prophetic future knowledge of events, but is mental because of it, mm. is a really beautiful way to keep reminding us of the Time War without taking us there. Yes. And yes. I think that's what RTD does well, is creates this structural this narrative structure of the time war as this lacuna, this gap in memory and events that we're aware of and stuff, but can still write a lot of really great stuff around it. And that, to me, is that's what the time war was always meant to be. And not to constantly contrast Moffat with RTD, but it's kind of impossible not to. What Moffat does later with the final days of the time war, I think absolutely reduces the scale of the time war in yeah. a kind of really egregious way. The fact that just through dialogue, Davies evokes so much like the joys of the nightmare child and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then when we get to Moffat and the 50th anniversary and it's just pure, pure Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I can't forgive him for that. Like The time war can't be shown on screen because it would be, we would not be able to comprehend events Mm. in time, in the the time war, because it's five-dimensional battles and things, you know. Mm. Um, I think you could make a good go of it. I could make a good go of it, and so could a lot of people I know, probably yourself included. But I think it's why the Time War should have been kept off screen, because it's mm. more evocative when we imagine what it was like to have 
battles that were fought and then undone and then refought because I mean it's mm. discussed that that is what happened you know what what is it like when the doctor enters a room but has already traveled back in time and re-enters that room while he's already there and you know you've got multiplicities of things but to have them just be like shooting lasers at each other was just nonsense do you know what I mean and I yeah. think the finale of this season particularly does this because these are now all survivors of the time war Davos yes. the doctor can the supreme Dalek, you know, these are like the 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 survivors who've clung on beyond the time war and are now battling for a foothold um, and a place. But also, as Davros reveals, his ultimate plan is: well, if we can't win the time war, then we're going to destroy reality entirely, mm. which is completely nonsensical and totally mad. Because, like, what would Daleks do when they lived in a reality where they were the only things that existed? But that's kind of the point. Yeah, yeah. He's mad. He's insane. He's and and you want I want that from who I want mm. our, our villains to be larger than life and to have absolutely nonsensical over the top plans that need to really be this need to you, you can only put a stop to it by pushing the reset button, unplugging mm. the crucible. Do you know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you can only defeat it by being like you're thinking on too high a level. We have to get you here in the sort of mundane where you're not mm. thinking, you know. And Davros is like a perfect example of those villains, I think. Absolutely. The reintroduction of Davros is incredible, actually. And he's brilliant. Like, he's yeah. The, 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 yeah, the new version of Davros is great. What makes Turn Left a very special episode for you? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I am, I've been drawn to dystopian fiction in my life, but I've always, and it's, you know, my field of study and stuff now, like, I've always been drawn to, like, a kind of more utopian mm. ideal. And I think Turn Left gives us sort of both of those. Um, it shows us the dystopia that would occur if the Doctor wasn't in it. And then we get that kind of like utopian moment of Donna sacrificing herself in order to still be alive with the Doctor and know that they're going into this, you know, cataclysmic adventure that's coming next. But it sort of reifies this idea that there's always a way, you know, mm. um, no matter how dark it gets. But I think that's as far as it goes in terms of like my sort of personal, you know, resonance with it. To me, it's a very special episode because it's so different from the rest of Who. And it's a show that in its difference reveals what is so good about RTD's run. You know, I think it's just incredibly clever to just flip everything on its head and reveal why the show had its second renaissance by doing it that way, you know, mm. by giving you greatest hits of all the the biggest things that have happened, by removing the Doctor and by showing us the dark outcome of those things. It shows us everything that we love about the Doctor and why it's important that the, doc the, the Doctor Who and the Doctor is, that ha has that positive note, it has that almost cheesy sincerity mm. and sensibility because it's, it's what we need in life. We don't need our heroes to be moping around and experiencing the dark night of the soul all the time we need to know that when the going gets tough they are going to save the day you yeah know? and i think turn left not only opens up the way for the the finale to do that but does it in itself you know it's it's a meta commentary on the show and i think it just is exemplary of the height that the show reached at that time culturally i think mm. i think it might reach it again at some point uh with 
uh, Her Royal Highness uh, coming back to their fold. I, How are you excited about that? Or are you? Oh, I mean, there's no, <laughs> way to no I'm, I am over the moon. I'm over the moon. I'm mm. over the moon because the, the show has had a difficult journey since RTD left. I so I just want to kind of put this on the record here. Actually, I, the, the nature of discourse online is that if you say a thing, people presume that that's where you're at on a binary. Mm. And my critiques of Moffat over the years have sometimes been received by people as me being like a Moffat hater and stuff. And they couldn't be further from the truth. I, As I said earlier, I felt like the end of time slightly jumped the shark. And when Moffat came along and Matt Smith came along, to me, it was really the right time. It was an mm. essential breath of fresh air. And I absolutely adored what Moffat was doing at the start. I really loved the, the new production values. I loved the slightly darker tone and I loved the high concept of it. It was living with Moffat's work on it over the years, I was just continually disappointed by his finales. Mm. Um, he threw a lot of ideas up in the air and he never stuck the landing for me and it got more morose as a show over time. So it was, I was disappointed in Moffat because my expectations were so high and my enjoyment mm. of him was so high at the start. So it's not that I kind of like, I'm an RTD fan, I hated Moffat, do you know what I mean? It's not as simple as that we can have different opinions in our heads at the one time, do you know what I mean? So I just wanted to kind of say that. And then obviously Chibnall's run and um, Jodie Whittaker's run is difficult for a whole host of reasons. And I don't know that it's, I don't think it's anything like as bad as some people make out. I think there's some really, really beautiful stuff in it. And I think she is a great doctor, but she's not necessarily written for or directed brilliantly at times. Mm. But to me, it's less about those individual things than it is about the show losing track of itself and the BBC losing track of the show. The constant schedule changes. And I just, I, I think a lack of confidence in itself. And mm. what I'm looking forward to is, I don't want Russell T Davies to come back on this and for it to be an aggressive move. I no. want RTD to come back on and almost do what he did for New Who, which is to kind of boost it a little, but also to try and set in place the like, the formula, you know, not to say that it's a generic formula that's to come, but to try and recapture some of that original DNA and sort of set the tone for people that follow. I mm. think it's a show that by necessity has experimented a little bit, but it needs to kind of find its feet and be on solid ground again. And I'm absolutely over the moon that he's the one that's hopefully coming along to do that because he understands the show so well. Yes. And he does so from the position of someone who is a fan, but not a fanboy. Yes. And, and I love that, you know. I think that's a great, a great way of putting it, actually. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for letting me talk about this episode because it is wonderful. I'm sure there'll be Doctor Who episodes coming up in the future and uh, I'll give you a shout at some point to talk about them. Mm, <laughs> um, maybe come back to talk about Russell T Davies' first episode back. And I think we should do a... Um, a sort of live roundtable discussion mm. of the 60th. I think that would be great. Yeah, yeah. And there we go. Another fantastic episode. I really, really enjoyed talking to Gary, as I'm sure you realise, um, about this about this episode, which one of my favourites um, of Russell T Davies' run, which is one of my favourite sort of 
eras of television and series of television. So next week's very special episode will be with Tasha Danraj, who's a writer that uh, I'm really excited about. And she chose quite an interesting one, a series that I'd never heard about um, called Corporate. Um, It's an episode called Natural Beauty from season two of Corporate. It's available in the UK on Now TV, but uh, I watched it on Amazon, but I had to pay for it. Um, (laughs) So all of like £1.49 or something for the episode. And I really enjoyed it. So I'll be interested to hear uh, what people think about that next week. Uh, And until next time, don't touch those dials. Watch it.